Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thanks for tuning in for another night of Alan Jones. But look, tell your family and friends where to find me. Just go to the website, adh.tv. The best part, it's free. And remember, you can email me your say, Jones at adh.tv. We love hearing from you. Plenty on tonight, including Network 10's political editor, Peter Van Onsford. Peter has been writing some splendid stuff lately in terms of what isn't being addressed in the election campaign, but should be. He'll join me tonight in the studio. But before we get into that, what about this nonsense from Zali Stegall? An unreadable piece by her today advocating for a climate change bill designed to lock into law Australia's climate targets. This is loopy stuff. The bill would also enshrine in law Australia's net zero by 2050. Net zero what? She wouldn't have a clue. This net zero stuff is diabolical for the future of our country. I call it a national economic suicide note. Are we seriously suggesting that we shut down all our coal industry, virtually the cleanest coal offering in the world, and stop exporting the stuff to other countries who want it? Is that the grand plan? Going down this road will guarantee one thing, Australia's economic poverty. You can forget better roads, better hospitals and schools. People like Zali Stegall are dangerous and living in a parallel universe in Parliament under false pretences. The kicker for me was when Ms Stegall ended her column by asking readers whether an independent would better represent them. When she says independent, she really means one of her teal independents, backed by Climate 200 and a billionaire. What fascinates me is that these so-called independents are opposing moderate liberals who actually share their same ideological stupidity on climate change. Work that out. These independents, trust me, are no more than Labor Party stooges. Tonight, I'll be talking to a real independent, the Fairfield Deputy Mayor Di Lee, talking on, taking on Christina Keneally in Fowler. She deserves to be heard, and she will be. That and more coming up. Well, it is election time, and that means both political leaders, Morrison and Albanese, are fair game. But one criticism the Prime Minister doesn't have to cop was levelled by Stephen Rushton, SC, one of three New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption Commissioners, who didn't have the courage to name the Prime Minister, but told a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry that describing ICAC as a kangaroo court was offensive, misleading and untrue. All grist to the mill for the anti-Morrison critics. Let me say firstly, Mr Rushton is most welcome to come onto this program and argue his case. But I think I have forgotten more about the injustices done to innocent people by the New South Wales ICAC than Mr Rushton would care to remember. The Prime Minister has restricted his focus to the former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, calling the treatment of her by ICAC shameful. Now, if Rushton were to get out of his ivory tower, where he obviously believes in his infallibility, he might care with a dash of humility to admit that the Prime Minister was right when he said in Tasmania last month, quote, I have seen lives destroyed by a commission which seems to operate through politics and shaming people, unquote. Well, as I said, without having the guts to name Prime Minister Morrison, Rushton chose to refer to New South Wales ICAC critics as buffoons and found it deeply offensive. And then there are vast differences, he said, between the functions of the New South Wales ICAC and a court. 
Well, he's right on one point in that the salaries of Mr. Rushton and his ilk, as I understand it, are 150% of the salary of a Supreme Court justice. Yet the ICAC commissioners presumably see themselves as beyond criticism. The Merigiclean case is but the latest, with her whole private life paraded before the public. Nonetheless, since ICAC have proved themselves masters at leaking to the media, individuals summoned to appear find themselves greeted by a bevy of media cameras. I read a story today from October 21, 2020, headlined Gladys Berejiklian to know her fate by Christmas. I wonder which Christmas they were talking about. It matters little that Berejiklian's a former Premier, but how long does she have to wait to know the conclusions drawn by ICAC? And I might add, no conclusion by ICAC and no evidence presented at ICAC is admissible in any court of law. But here is one person, Berejiklian, innocent until proven guilty, whose private phone calls have been splashed across every media outlet. But then there's another state Liberal MP in New South Wales, John Sadoti. He has been waiting for three years to determine what ICAC think about him. What did the Prime Minister say in Tasmania? Correctly, quote, I've seen the lives destroyed by a commission that seems to operate through politics and shaming people. Michael Gallagher, the former New South Wales Liberal Police Minister, eminently decent, totally honest, was at a passing out parade of graduates into the police force when a staff member told him he'd been mentioned in ICAC. It cost him his ministry, just being mentioned. I could go on. There are authenticated reports that 128 people have been defamed or destroyed by the New South Wales ICAC, that the Prime Minister rightly attacks, yet for his trouble is called a buffoon. Perhaps Mr Morrison's critics, including Rushton, could speak to Murray Keir or Sharif Kazal or Jeff McCloy or Michael Gallagher or John Sidoti, even the distinguished former Crown Prosecutor Margaret Keneen or the innocent shareholders of Newcoal. Margaret Keneen had the outstanding scholarship and the guts to take ICAC all the way to the High Court and she won. Not only did she win, but Justice Levine, an ICAC inspector responsible for running the ruler over the behaviour of ICAC, found in the Keneen case that ICAC had exceeded its jurisdiction. Margaret Keneen's career could have been ruined. So it is with Sharif Kazal. Mr Justice Nicholson, another ICAC inspector, found that ICAC had exceeded its jurisdiction in the Kazal case. Both Levine and Nicholson are former judges. Let me ask this question. If the decisions of ICAC had been so correct for so long, why, following the High Court decision in which Margaret Keneen trounced ICAC, why did the then ICAC Commissioner Megan Latham lobby the Baird government, which shamefully yielded to Latham? Why did Megan Latham seek legislation to give retrospective legitimacy to all previous ICAC decisions? And a Liberal government, a bad Liberal government, buckled. Why? I've no idea, but I suspect a whole stack of innocent individuals would have put in train legal action against the government and ICAC for the defamation they had endured. It's taken some guts for Scott Morrison to stand up to people like Rushton and others. We may well need a federal integrity body, but we don't need it to use as its model the appalling way in which the New South Wales ICAC has treated innocent people. Mr Rushton SC, whose term as Commissioner expires shortly, referred this week to those buffoons who have repeatedly described the Commission as a kangaroo court, unquote. Well, of course, he meant the Prime Minister. 
Mr. Ashton, the real buffoon in all of this is not the Prime Minister, but you. And when you say it's deeply offensive for the Prime Minister to speak the way he did, Mr. Ashton, why don't you take the time to wonder how deeply offensive it is for people named at ICAC and found to be completely innocent, yet enjoy no exoneration protocol, and I might add, no compensation. That is, people who've been wronged by ICAC stay on the ICAC website as wronged. Not even the innocent shareholders of New Coal, who because of ICAC have lost everything. In relation to ICAC, sadly, there are buffoons everywhere. The Prime Minister is not one of them. I repeat, Mr. Rushton, there's a seat for you here to ventilate and justify your concerns. Well, Peter Van Onselen has enjoyed an outstanding academic career. He is, in fact, a political academic, an author, a political journalist and commentator. He worked in the Howard government in 2001. He became an associate professor at Edith Cowan University in WA in 2004 and left that post to become the Winthrop Professor and Foundation Chair of Journalism at the University of WA. He's written several politically themed books, including being the co-author of John Winston Howard, which was rated by the Wall Street Journal Asia as the best biography of 2007. In 2008, Peter Van Onselen was appointed Professor of Policy at Griffith Business School, Griffith University, which is in Brisbane. Well, we're in the second half of the election campaign. He has called it a Seinfeld election campaign because it seems to be about nothing, certainly when it comes to the economy. And Peter joins me tonight. Peter, thank you for your time. I said last night that the interest rate increase was quite frankly long overdue. The era of cheap money had to end. But what are we to make of the Reserve Bank virtually misleading potential homeowners when it said on July 7 last year, if you think we're going to raise interest rates in 2023, not 2022, you've got a, hand, a greater hand in a positive forecast of wages growth than we currently have. What do you make of the Reserve Bank? G'day, Alan. Great to be with you. I mean, Thank you. the best case scenario for the Reserve Bank uh, is that it was incompetence that they weren't very good at their predicting, which is a worry, of course, because the whole basis that they try to set the cash rate is to predict where the economy is going and what to expect next. So that's their best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that it was deliberately misleading, perhaps even political. And either way, uh, for people who are sort of hocking themselves up in mortgages going forward, yes. it's a huge problem because this rate rise, we know this, it's the first of many and the first of many this year. And they were, as you point out, trying to convince people that there wouldn't be any movement uh, for yeah. a number of years yeah. to come. And, and that has clearly not happened. And because rates are so low and they're going up so quickly, the size of the mortgage increase yeah. for people is huge. Well, how do, they, how, can, how, do, how do they then trust the Reserve Bank? I mean, Philip Lowe said on Tuesday that normalised rates could be 2.5%. Yeah, well, and, and for that to happen, we are literally going to see people who have just hocked themselves in, up to their yes, eyeballs in yes. debt paying double, literally double, what they're currently paying on their mortgages, potentially, certainly as far as interest payments go. And that is going to see house prices fall. And by the way, when interest rates go up, rents go up as well. So it's not just people mm. with mortgages that suffer, it's people who are in that renting stratosphere that suffer as well. So Mind you, the savers have most probably got a smile on their face, haven't they? But That's true, that's but, true. But if the Australian economy can't withstand a cash rate above the 0.1 without jobs and property market crashing, we must be in a bit more trouble than we're prepared to admit. What do you reckon? Well, and, and that's the paradox of this, because it is true that rising interest rates for other reasons can be a good thing because it's a sign of a stronger economy. And it was always a sign of a weak economy or at least worry yes. of a weak economy yes. that they were bringing them down yes. as fast as they were. But they had to go up 
uh, and you know that that is where we're at. But the economy is weak, Alan. Yes. I mean, people shouldn't pretend otherwise. No. See, the point you make. See, uh, the Reserve Bank and the difficulties there and the inconsistencies won't be discussed. Now, you make the simple point about the future that despite the significant challenges we face, neither major party has a plan for the kind of future you and I have just outlined in the last minute. It's Tweedledum and Tweedledee, it really is. Both major parties aren't prepared to have the hard conversations. You go right back to post-2013. Tony Abbott put on the agenda to have a white paper on federation and tax reform. Malcolm Turnbull scrapped it the instant he took over as Prime Minister, and now it's like it never happened. And we're going into an election. Coalition wants a fourth term. Labor are supposed to be giving us whiz-bang reasons for getting into power. Neither are talking about the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is it's time, it's overdue time, for serious tax and federation reform to fix the economy. They're both not prepared to do it. Definitely. I mean, you make the point that uh, the government might benefit from the perception that it's the better economic manager. But you say after eight and a half years in office, they've got next to nothing to show for it. I mean, what I can't get my head around is that the coalition inherited gross national debt at 20% of GDP. By the time COVID struck, it was up to 28%. Mm. There had been no crisis but it was the biggest load of national debt since 1958. Now, I've gone on about this for years and years and years. The gross national debt is now 42.5% of GDP. Whitlam was regarded as an economic dunce. Debt was 24.5% of GDP. But the budget papers tell us that debt will climb to 44.9% of GDP in two years' time. Peter, I haven't heard the debt word mentioned once in the last three weeks. And today at the National Press Club, the two Treasury options, Josh Frydenberg and Jim Chalmers were talking, I asked them about how they were going to fix that structural deficit, the difference between tax to GDP versus spending. No answer. Both of them talked for two minutes each, but neither (laughs) of them gave us any suggestion of where they go. And you know what the worst part about this discussion is? Both sides of politics now talk about debt as though it's not a problem because our debt is lower than debt to GDP in other parts of the world. Just because it's incredibly bad in places like Japan, the US and the UK doesn't make it okay that we are on the same trajectory. And that's the problem. Good on you. And we're paying $18 a year in interest. That's before the interest rates go up. And the budget says... That'll rise to $26 billion a year within four years. Now, as I've said many times, our defence capability is such that we couldn't defend ourselves against a barrow full of marbles, but the defence budget is $48 billion. The interest on our debt is more than half of that. And a Treasury update two weeks ago said the interest bill could climb to $38 billion. And then you've got what you've written about and I've talked about the structural deficit. I mean, hell, these are massive figures, Peter. And without a restructure of the tax system, without a restructure of the federation, the way that we currently tax is a dying method of tax and it's sapping productivity. It's too much reliance on income tax, not enough ways of dispersing that in other directions. For example, an adjustment to the consumption tax. Neither side of politics want to talk about this. And as a result, we're in this awkward situation. We're going forward. We We are heading in decline. So are a lot of other Western countries that aren't doing proper reform either. But we are in the same trajectory with rising debt, rising deficits, yeah. and you, no you, answer. Those words you use are valid. There has to be an adjustment to the GST. But what about yesterday, Peter, the Victorian Treasurer, in his budget speech, proudly announcing an operating deficit of $17.6 billion, more than 50% higher than the deficit in last year's budget? 
Yeah, and this is the case pretty much all around the country except for WA, where, of course, they've got the mining benefits that the other parts of the country don't. States need to reform just as much as the Commonwealth. Yeah. But because tax reform requires federation reform, this goes back to that white paper that Abbott brought in, but nothing ever happened subsequently. If you don't reform the federation, you can't fix the problems because it's about getting state and federal taxes in alignment. They're both messed up. You need to reform it. But what about the Morrison government saying it won't increase taxes? Well... 10 million households will face a higher income tax bill from July 1 next year when the low and middle income tax offset expires and then the fuel tax relief ends in September. I mean, you ask us to think of the Australian economy as a car and the tax system as the engine, the most important component. But you say both major parties are polishing the exterior, debating what colour and shape it should take and even arguing about the layout of the interior, but the engine is old, outdated and in need of a major overhaul. It's a splendid analogy. And but to argue that there won't be any tax increases is a nonsense. And anyone who loves their cars, it's the engine that's the key. You know, the yeah. rest of it becomes the window dressing. Yeah. You work on that if you can, but you've got to get the engine right. Our engine to our economy is our tax system and how it's structured Neither party has a solution for it. And you know what's so depressing about this is that I look at the ranks of both the Liberal and the Labor parties and there are not enough people on either front benches or back benches who care enough about this no. to do what the Dries did in the Liberal Party in their way or what Hawke did in the Labor Party around yes. microeconomic reform but or what Howard certainly did with the GST. I don't know who the next Peter, person is who does it. Peter, it's not caring. They simply don't know. They don't yeah. know. Half of them don't read. You made this point about relying on income tax. I mean, 42% of the government's revenue comes from income tax. For God's sake. What incentive is there to work? Company tax, 17%. These are figures miles ahead of the OECD average. And then payroll tax, which taxes an employer for giving someone a job. And again, the way that you fix that is by getting the state and the federal government together to have a tax summit. Now, I'm not a fan of these, you know, endless summits and meetings, but the one that we need to start the ball rolling on actual serious reform is a tax summit. You know, for yep. all the mistakes yep. of the Hawke-Keating government, they yes. had a tax summit after they got in. Howard didn't need to have one, he just brought in the GST and then won an election on it in 98. But you have to do something like that. We've had two new governments that haven't managed to have yeah. those big reforms straight mm. away. Rudd and Abbott got in, both got rolled, neither government going mm. forward while the whole time they were in have managed to achieve major reform and it's but frustrating. But Peter, you've got, as you said, to tackle expenditure, which is utterly inflationary, but both parties together have already made over $7 billion in promises in this election campaign after the federal budget pumped billions of dollars into the pockets of consumers. And then they want to talk about inflation. Well, Alan, just look at the numbers. Yeah. You know, the coalition says we won't tax more than 23.9% of GDP. That misses the point. Spending as a percentage of GDP right now is 27.8%. So it's all good and well not to tax more than 23.9%. But if you're spending well in excess of that's that, it. that's not only deficits, but you pump prime in an economy that's already got inflationary pressures. It's a bad mix. It's a, it's a worse than bad mix. Just let me raise just one final point with you. There is a problem, isn't there? Uh, and I have some sympathy for governments, with the electoral cycle in Australia, three years. It's so short that they believe that by the time the reform starts to bite, public anger will set in and they'll be turfed out. I mean, I don't, on top of that, I don't believe we've got people with the ability to get into the ring and prosecute the case. I mean, how did Costello introduce the GST? Taxing people on what they bought? I mean, I wasn't in favour of the exemptions, but the only way Howard could get the tax reform through was to accommodate the Democrats. But Howard and Costello prosecuted the case, 
treated the public as intelligent enough to understand what they were trying to do. No one's prepared to do this now. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start because I think that looking at three yeah. to four year terms is, is one option. Fixing the term is another. But you need to look at party pre-selections. You need to look at who goes into politics yeah. to try yeah. to get the right people yeah. in there. Possibly, Alan, even term limits once you are in there yeah. so that people don't see it as a career. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're get not on the, the front Brussels bench, sprouts. get rid of them. Exactly. Get rid of the people <laughs> who aren't worthy of saying yes. there. There's, look, there's, there's so much that needs to get fixed. Yeah. But it does start with having courage and conviction okay. amongst our politicians. Finally, you've got two little girls. They'll be paying this off into the never-never. What's the answer? Well, both of them want to go study and possibly live overseas, but that's not really a solution to the problems <laughs> back here at home in Australia, is it? <laughs> Look, I like to think that these solutions, that, the, that these problems get solved by a leader who has the ability to take the country, their party, the media with them. Absolutely. The problem is I don't know who that is at the moment. I We've agree. always found them in Australia. Yeah. I just don't know just yet who that person Great is. Great to talk to you, Peter. Thanks, Thank Alan. you for your time. Peter Van Onsel, and we will talk again, Peter. You can read Peter at the Australian newspaper, but these issues, as Peter says, need to be addressed. Peter, grateful for your time. Peter Van Onsel. Now, many people would say there should be sanctions against individuals and political parties for not telling the truth in election campaigns. Well, enter the oleaginous former Labor Attorney General Mark Dreyfus. He was Attorney General for a couple of months between February and September 2013, long enough, I might add, in the Gillard and Rudd governments. He's 65 years of age. Might be time to move on. Dreyfus claims the coalition wants to privatise the ABC. Many of us wish that were true. But the federal government has repeatedly rejected any such proposal. But Dreyfus, addressing an ABC Friends rally a little over a week ago, criticised the Morrison government for threatening the ABC and said that the government was considering selling the public broadcaster. Of course, that was grist to the mill to the Victorian president of ABC Friends, Michael Henry. Dreyfus wasn't in any way being cautious about prospering what Paul Fletcher calls a lie when he said, quote, the government thinks nothing of adopting a policy of privatising the ABC. Paul Fletcher, the communications minister, himself, I might add, not good, Paul Fletcher, are you listening, at responding to correspondence or constituents. Yet these people expect you to vote for them, don't they? Anyway, Fletcher said of Dreyfus's claims that they were, quote, nothing more or less than election disinformation, unquote. I repeat, why not privatise the ABC? And if people want to use it, pay for it. But Minister Fletcher and the government says the coalition is fully committed to the ABC in public ownership and has called the Dreyfus argument that the coalition want to privatise the ABC as a lie. And it is. As is it, many Australians who see the ABC as a professional public sector basher-up of the coalition would be happy to not waste $4.2 billion of taxpayers' money over three years, notwithstanding that the ABC does some very good work. It is true that in 2018, the Liberal Party's peak council voted in favour of a motion calling for the coalition to privatise the ABC. But that vote has no binding power on the government. And the coalition government says it has no plans to sell off the ABC. But the self-important, oleaginous, overrated Dreyfus continues to prosper this false narrative. Then Dreyfus launched into a criticism that the former Attorney-General Christian Porter has lodged a complaint about a Four Corners episode, which, as a citizen, he's entitled to do. And having seen the nature of the complaint, Christian Porter would be a fool not to proceed with it. He has been done a manifest injustice by the ABC. 
Is Dreyfus a QC suggesting that because Christian Porter is seeking to challenge the ABC's selective prosecution of him in a biased Four Corners program, is Porter not entitled to seek redress, to defend himself? From what legal world did Dreyfus get his QC if he's not prepared to uphold the presumption of innocence? The thought that this bloke Dreyfus could become the Attorney General in a Labor government is enough to cause you to race to the polls and vote for the coalition. Now, each week we'll take you to Britain for the latest on what's happening in Britain and Europe. And I'll be joined by the highly regarded David Maddox, the political editor of Express Online. You can read David at express.co.uk. So I welcome tonight, David, for the first time. David, thank you for your time. Uh, you're the author of an extraordinary oh, story that in 2019, Conservatives who were opposed to Brexit and had defected from the party joined Labor, the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish Nationalist Remainers in discussing how to reverse the EU referendum. And you're saying the coordinator of that discussion was the then Labor Shadow Brexit Secretary, now Opposition Leader Sir Keir Starmer. That's right, yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing, actually, how uh, short memories are in, in this country. I think maybe a lot of my colleagues have just liked to forget it because it was such a painful part of our political history, that whole Brexit negotiations. But, yeah, there was a, there was a moment there where the, the elected Conservative government was almost deposed by this new Remainer majority and uh, it would have been it, you know, we'd still be in the EU. An only decision, I understand, by the Supreme Court actually knocked that on the, on the head. But how close was the Remainer alliance to victory with the attempt to prorogue the so, Parliament and call an election? It, has Jeremy Corbyn been the hero of all of this? Because the deal was, if that were to happen, um, Hillary Benn would become the interim Prime Minister. Corbyn said, no, it's me or nothing. So, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as much as many of us object to Jeremy Corbyn's mad left-wing policies, he is the secret Brexit hero. He, uh, he refused to campaign in the EU referendum properly. So a lot of the Labour vote uh, didn't come out for Remain, uh, partly thanks to him. And then, yes, uh, he was the reason this, uh, this new kind of a Remain alliance didn't happen as a government because he said... If it's going to happen, I've got to be prime minister, and there was no way anybody was accepting that. I mean, I mean, the, the so consequences would what, have been what, what is to happen to Brexit if Keir Starmer becomes prime minister? So my my view and that, the point of our article is that uh, this this is not over yet. I mean, we all assume that now we've left the EU and things are kind of you know trade deals are coming in yeah. in Australia and others. But, but it's all done. But actually, there's a very simple path back. And uh, that path back is locking uh, uh, Britain into the EU's trade uh, uh, trade arrangements, uh, locking it into their security arrangements, which would be uh, appalling, actually. It'd be a complete disaster, as we've seen with Ukraine. And, uh, you know, doing it by salami slicing our way back in. So, so you're saying if Labor, the Lib Dems and the Scottish Nationalists came together to form a new coalition, yeah. that could finish off the Tory government? 
I think I think it's more Labour and Lib Dems. Uh, the, the the Scottish Nationalists have a wild card. The, the, the Scottish Nationalists were certainly in play for that Remainer alliance because they hated Brexit. But uh, uh, but they've they've got another agenda, which is to you know remove Scotland from the United Kingdom. But there is a there's a decent chance of Labour and the Lib Dems, and we're actually seeing it. We've got local elections and regional elections yes. here, and we're seeing an unofficial coalition emerge already. So Brexit's not over? Absolutely not. Absolutely mm. not. There you are. Well, let's just have a look at this. If anybody thinks it is, is kidding themselves. Let's have a look at this. <laughs> Good idea. Well, on replacing people, is Boris Johnson at risk of being replaced? I think uh, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would say definitely. Uh, I, th I think the chances of that happening are lessening by the day. Uh, and that's partly because of the woes of, Miss, uh, of Sir Keir Starmer, uh, because he uh, has been caught up with his own party scandal uh, and may well get fined himself. Uh, we, we wait to see on that. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's not over yet. A bad election result this week. And, you know, there are people waiting in the wings to push him out. So the women, you're saying that there are three women in line or four. Liz Truss, who's an Oxford mm. University graduate, foreign secretary. Wasn't she a, a, a Remainer over Brexit? <laughs> yeah, she's rebranded herself kind of Brexit <laughs> superwoman now uh, <laughs> because she knows where the votes are. Uh, you know, uh, which is actually a reason why a lot of people mistrust her in the Conservative yeah. Party because the Conservative Party is what mostly about, Brexiteer what, now. What about the 50-year-old Priti Patel, born in London to a Ugandan-Indian family, a long-standing Eurosceptic, mm. so her credentials are quite sound? Yeah, very sound, but uh, I, I like... Personally, I like Britty a lot. Uh, she's the ideological heir to Margaret Thatcher. Very tough, very direct, uh, but a bit of a Marmite character. Uh, her problem will be to persuade MPs to support her. I think the yes. Conservative Party membership would support her in droves. What about Penny Mordaunt? She's a wild card in this, actually, and I, I could see her emerge. She's, she's just taken up the international trade brief. It's put her back in the spotlight. She was a defence secretary, very capable, very good with the media. Seen as a bit, uh, a bit on the kind of left with social issues, can be a little bit woke, but on some issues. But uh, nevertheless, popular, popular figure in the party. And, and finally, what about Esther McVeigh? I mean, a wor real working class background, so that would have some appeal, surely. Liverpoolian, Liverpudlian. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I write. Esther very highly, and she uh, is responsible for a thing called the Blue Collar Conservative Movement, which is actually what uh, swept away a lot of the Labour seats in 2019 yeah, yeah. in these kind of traditional working class areas. Um, again, she, she would have a, a, a lot to do to to persuade her colleagues, MPs, to put her on the final mm. ballot. Yeah, but well, uh, actually, I think she's extremely capable, very yeah. energetic. And they've got a long way to go. None of them are Thatchers. There we are. But how, listen, listen, David. Are you seriously saying that the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, <laughs> wants to run for President of the United States? Wasn't there a Democ Democracy Institute Express US tracker poll published at the weekend? And people are asked yeah. which female candidate they want. Respondents put Markle second behind Michelle Obama and ahead of Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton. Has the world gone mad? 
it's gone crazy. But actually, if you think about it, uh, Meghan Markle is the perfect Democrat candidate, isn't she? She's mixed race. She's woke. She's rich. She's on the left. She's a celebrity. She's got, you know, I mean, what's there not to like if you're a Democrat? You know, I mean, she's completely, uh, she, uh, no chance of, I mean, as we can see in our poll, actually, she's no chance of beating somebody like Donald Trump. But, you know, it's it's the perfect Democrat oh, candidate. Come it, on. In fact, I did an interview with Patrick, who did the interview, and we uh, uh, did the polling. And he said, if you had a computer generated, a computer-generated Democrat candidate, it would be the Duchess of Sussex. Amazing. And just a quick one before you go on that same subject. Uh, massive victory in prospect for the Republicans in the House of Representatives and the Senate at the midterm elections in November? Yeah, and uh, I think people haven't quite appreciated the significance of that, certainly over here, uh, because there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, revenge in, in store yes. on the Democrats yes. for, for what they did to try to do to Trump and right. you know, getting him out of office. Just, I suspect we're going to be seeing impeachment processes for Biden. So I'm just going to ask you that. So would the Republicans with numbers in both house, houses push ahead to impeach Biden over the corruption involving his son Hunter and his dealings with Ukraine? Uh, that's, that's what I've been told by my American friends. I think there's a very good chance of that. And I, and I think the the Democrats set the bar quite low, really, with Trump. And uh, you know, when you, when you do these things, they come back to bite you. And uh, and, and we're going to say that. I mean, one thing that can be said is there's only two years to the next presidential election, and you can almost put your house on the fact that Biden won't be running again. So, I know. And just a know. quick one before you go: How will Twitter, coming under the ownership of Elon Musk, affect things? Well, hopefully it's going to be a big boost for free speech, especially for us on the conservative yep. side yep. of things. I mean, uh, I mean, I, my problem with Twitter is it's uh, it's always populated, it seems, by lefty liberals. And mm. if you've looked at the last anonymous, British election, anonymous you'd think lefty that Jeremy liberals. Corbyn was going to be prime minister. Mm. Anonymous Sorry? lefty liberals. Yeah. He might knock off the anonymity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Absolutely. We'll leave it there, David. Great to talk to you. We're going to have a lot of fun joining up every week. There yeah. he is. Hey, Great thank, to join you, Alan. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. There he is, David Maddox. And those extraordinary stories, aren't they? Megan Markle, for God's sake, second in line, second in line as a Democratic candidate for the presidency of the United States of America. That madness, though, I have to say, reigns in the world of politics, and this just proves it. There he is, David Maddox. We'll talk to him again next week. Well, look, we've heard an awful lot, haven't we, to the point of boredom about these so-called teal candidates, allegedly independent, but nowhere near it. They're stalking horses for the Labor Party on the left, whether it be Monique Ryan and Kuyong, Sophie Scamps and McKellar, even that non-achiever Stegall in Warringah. And I don't know where you place Allegra Spender. She's of blue blood stock. Her father, John Spender, a long-time distinguished member of the Liberal Party, 10 years a Liberal member of the House of Representatives and a Liberal appointment as Ambassador to France from 1996 to 2000. Her grandfather, Sir Percy Spender, was a Cabinet Minister under Robert Menzies, the Australian Ambassador to the United States, a member of the International Court of Justice. How Allegra Spender has got herself into this political mess, I don't know. But instead of teal independents who've had any amount of media exposure, I thought we should talk to a real independent, Di Lee. Di Lee is an extraordinary story. The Deputy Mayor of Fairfield Council She's running as an independent against Christina Keneally in the Western Sydney seat of Fowler. 
She's had the support of the outstanding and popular local mayor, Frank Carboni, protesting Christina Keneally being parachuted into the seat. Dai Li's family moved to Australia from Vietnam in the 1970s. She was elected to Fairfield Council 10 years ago. She's a former member of the Liberal Party. She's now running as a genuine independent against Christina Keneally. Dai joins me. Dai, thank you for your time. Dai, I'm overwhelmed by your story. In 1975, after the fall of the non-communist government in Saigon to the communist regime in Hanoi, your mother fled Vietnam with you and two of the, her children, three children by boat. Do you remember all that? Absolutely, Alan. Uh, thank you for being, you know, allowing me to be on your show. Uh, it, of course, uh, I was a young kid, but I remember very vividly that we actually had to run, literally had to run as, as our city fell into the hands of communism. Mm. Uh, so I spent the next four years uh, in uh, and then were given and processed by the United Nations, the UNHCR, and given settlement here in Australia at the end of 79. So what is the mood out there in Fowler with traditional Labor supporters, upset that the Labor Party machine has imposed Christina Keneally as the candidate without a rank-and-file pre-selection? Look, the mood has been... Like, uh, I think the, the local community out here felt really... Uh, there was a slap in the face to bring somebody... Uh, not just anybody, but somebody from Scotland Island, some, from a very privileged part of Sydney, to come and represent this area that are predominantly, as you can appreciate, Alan, a working class, a, a aspirational community, but they are hard-working community out here in Fowler. So it has been a real, um, you know, a slap in the face, felt like, yes. you know, your electorate is 164,000 people, almost an equal split between male and female, a weekly median household income of 1,200 bucks a week. That's, what, 60,000 a year. They're not on easy street, are they? And then, of course, you've got this tremendous, what I would call ethnic mix, 16% of Vietnamese extraction, 11% Chinese, only 8% Australian. So the voters of Vietnamese and Chinese ancestry are more than a quarter of the electorate. Are you electorally penetrating through them? Our electorate is very diverse, um, Alan. Uh, also the 10% of a Syrian background as well. Yep. And, you, you know, we're very diverse and absolutely everybody from what I have gathered when I go out there at the train station talking with people, even when I go shopping or eating at shops, people are telling me, look, we cannot believe that they would have somebody like Christina Keneally yeah. coming into our city. Yeah. Why didn't she go to her in her seat in her local community yeah. of McKellar? That's yeah. where she actually That's went, it. as should be. But see, um, 76, so, yeah. 76% of your voters are people for whom both parents were born overseas. Have you got through? Do the voters fully understand your background? You, on your background, are a legitimate candidate. I believe so, Alan. Uh, a lot of people are telling me that, that they... They know that I have walked in their shoes. A lot of us out here, as you have said, migrants and refugees, we came here, we worked very hard, and we know the struggles that we actually had to have gone through in order to rebuild our lives. And I don't believe Christina is connected to that. I don't believe she understands that, that, that journey that we have been through. Yeah, I mean, it seems a fertile ground for your candidature, which is why I wanted to talk to you. What are you hearing as you go about the electorate? I'm hearing that, look, how can we trust her to deliver if she's not connected to us? She has no idea about our city. She has no idea about 
the, especially in the last two years, we were in lockdown uh, under restrictions. She was, you know, she was there in the northern beaches and having a different lifestyle to how we were restricted here. It was, it was a very difficult time in the last uh, two years out here, Alan. Mm. Well, let me say, die to you. Uh, our viewership is very powerful in that area of Sydney. And I'm saying to viewers out there, this, forget the teal independence, this lady you see on your screen here, 10 years on Fairfield Council, Deputy Mayor, strongly supported by Frank Carboni, who walked over the Labor candidate at the last council election. Both these very popular. Di Lee is a legitimate candidate and a legitimate representative of your electorate. Di, thank you for talking. I really wish you well and we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Alan. There you are. Now, how impressive is that lady? What a story, though. Which of us, which of us could have walked in her shoes? Di Lee. Well, before we go, I spoke earlier in the program about Meghan Markle, a candidate, apparently, for the presidency of the United States. Can you believe it? What are Australians, though, to make of the news that the insufferable Markle, according to sources, hated every second of touring Australia? Remember Prince Harry and his wife Markle toured here in October 2018. They visited Sydney, Melbourne, Dubbo and Fraser Island in Queensland. Claims from a new book by the former Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown called The Palace Papers outline that Meghan Markle hated the representational role traditionally carried out by the royals. Seriously, who does this C-grade actress think she is? To Meghan Markle, I think we all say one thing. If you don't like Australia, stay away. We'll take Princess Anne any day of the week over Miss Markle. Princess Anne was a hit at the Royal Easter Show in Sydney. The public couldn't get enough of her. The only criticism would be that the tour was over too quickly. But back to Markle, these claims in the book, The Palace Papers, come after the streaming giant Netflix quietly cancelled a series created by the couple's Archiewell Productions. The cartoon series called Pearl was meant to be about the adventures of a 12-year-old girl who finds inspiration in a variety of influential women throughout history. Netflix cancelled the series before it was even made. Ross Clark summed it up well in the UK Spectator magazine when he wrote, Anyone who thinks that Harry and Meghan have good commercial value beyond the context of their fallout with their respective families should try this little thought experiment. Ask yourself two questions. Firstly, did you watch Harry and Meghan's Oprah Winfrey interview? Secondly, were you looking forward to watching Pearl? He said, Ross Clark, it won't seem too much like a magic trick if I tell you that your answers were yes and no, or perhaps more likely yes and what the hell is that? Well, I can sum it up better. Have we finally entered a stage where streaming giants like Netflix and others are finally putting a line through the sand of sanctimonious woke programming? Because I'll tell you one thing, we can, do all, we can all do without it. From the very start, the idea of Meghan Markle producing programs, sorry, I mean animation series, was always a joke. The person who signed off on the deal at Netflix should be shown the door. As Tesla founder Elon Musk has rightly identified, the streaming giants have been captured by a brand of preachy, politically correct programming which drives away audiences, and we see that here in Australia. Programs which, once loved by Australians, have been hijacked by woke media executives who change a winning formula for the sake of it, or even worse, bow down to pressure from left-wing activists. For their efforts, they see a slide in their ratings. Well, one streaming service where you won't find woke programming is here, 
ADH. We are news, analysis and commentary you can trust. We don't back political sides, we back Australia. And that's it from me tonight. Remember, you can have your say by emailing Jones at adh.tv. Thank you for your company. See you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock on adh.tv. Good night.